Sometimes I get the feeling like you just want to keep singing. Uh, tonight's one of those nights. And we'll keep singing, it's just you got to listen to me first. Uh, we will sing some more, I assure you. Um, if you have a Bible nearby, uh, let's turn together to Ephesians chapter 5. And then we're going to get to that in a little bit. So you can just kind of hang on to it. You know, we've been, uh, for the last few weeks, uh, talking about conflict resolution and what that looks like biblically and um, just that very important aspect of living life together as a family that, um, that we learn how to deal with the tensions that exist between us in ways that are reflective of what Jesus has done uh, in us and what he's doing through us and among us. Um, that uh, as those tensions arise, we, that wouldn't be a time when the gospel is kind of thrown out the window, when all that he has done for us is kind of tossed aside, uh, but we would actually, that would be one of those times we look at the gospel and we say, how does this apply to uh, the tensions that exist here? And so um, it, was, it was four Sundays, uh, that, like a four-part series, and uh, if you missed any of those, they're all online and available to kind of listen to it and Kind of see what God has for us. Um, so for the next couple of weeks, you know, Lent uh, begins uh, the Wednesday uh, after Mardi Gras, and uh, so between now and when Lent starts, we're gonna we're gonna look at some other aspects of family life together. Uh, when I say family life in this sentence I just said, I'm talking about like church family life, um, but uh, we're also going to talk about marriage and family and how that fits into the larger context of things. Uh, tonight. And so with Valentine's Day being on Friday, we had um, our married and engaged discipleship deal yesterday morning. This is just going to kind of be the uh, kind of fit into the weekend accordingly. And so I know that um, typically whenever there's a sermon or any sort of teaching on marriage, the like married and engaged folks really pay attention. And the people who are not married tend to kind of check out a little bit or uh, or whatever. And so um, I want to encourage those of us, okay, I'm in the unmarried camp, those of us who are not married, uh, this pertains to us just as much uh, as it does to those who are married, it's just we apply it differently, of course. And so if you are unmarried, but you hope to be married one day, then this will fit into that, certainly. If you are not married, and you aren't sure if you're going to get married or want to be married, you probably know married people, and so this will help you understand what they're going through as well. And how to live communally with them. And so, uh, so that's going to be the focus for tonight. Um, and I want to start off kind of talking about something that, that came up uh, a few weeks ago for me as the, the BCM at LSU was starting a series. And um, there were a couple of us that taught throughout the course of the Thursday nights and stuff like that. And so the topic that I was given was, was love. And so it just started to... Uh, it's, it's super broad, of course, and trying to figure out, okay, how do you take this really broad subject and narrow it down into like a you know, 25-minute deal? And um, it was very good for me to have to think through that and figure out how to package it, so to speak, and, and whatever. And so I want to bring some of, some of that talk into this tonight, but then also move a lot toward marriage and stuff like that. Um, if you guys have ever read uh, any C.S. Lewis stuff, you'll, you'll probably know that he has a, a book called The Four Loves. And he goes through different kinds of love uh, using Greek words. And um, so what I want to do tonight is I want to talk about three of those four that he points out. Um, some, you know, when you get into the Greek language, there are, there are more words for love as well. Uh, there are four that he points out. There are three that we're going to focus on tonight. And there's only two of them that are in the New Testament. So uh, there's a bunch of stats for you right there. Uh, let, me, let me run through the four kinds that C.S. Lewis points out. Uh, the first one, which we're not going to deal with a whole lot, uh, is spelled uh, S-T-O-R-G-E. I believe it's uh, Storge, I think is maybe how you would pronounce it. Um, but uh, that's the kind of love like that, is, that has some sort of natural attachment that's there. You know? So, um, so a, a mother gives, gives birth, gets pregnant, gives, gives birth. She's, that, that love that she has for that child that she hasn't even met doesn't know. Uh, there's no. There's no relationship there as far as like in some of these other ways. There's this, this natural attachment. That's that's the first kind of love. 
Um, it can be this attachment between parent and child. It can be the attachment between um, you and your new puppy. Okay, which is not to say that children and puppies are the same. I'm just saying it's like this natural, like it just it just happens. There isn't even a relationship there the way that we would describe relationships, but there's this connection that's there. That's the first kind. That's the kind we're not going to talk about, although it is, of course, incredibly important. And we will talk about that in, a, in, a, in the coming weeks probably a little bit more. But the three kind I want to focus on are probably familiar to you if you've kind of been around church and stuff. If you haven't, then maybe this is new, and that's fine too. Um, that's really not all that important. But church people like to talk about this, uh, these different, the different words for love and what they mean, how they fit into stuff. So that's the only reason I said that. Um, the, the first one that I want to talk about is, uh, is agape, A-G-A-P-E. Um, this is the, this is, this is the Greek word for love that is found the most in the New Testament. Uh, and not that word count means everything, but there, this word shows up a lot in the New Testament. Um, and a way that you can think about this, uh, this is agape love is the kind of love that, that God has for us. It's the kind of love that's demonstrated by Jesus coming to the earth and dying for our sins. It is uh, willing to sacrifice for the good of another. It is willing the good of another and acting upon it no no matter what it takes. Um, Agape love isn't conditioned on if it's reciprocated or not. Okay, Agape love, you can think about this. Agape love goes 100% toward someone else. And even if, they, even if they turn their back on you, even if they don't want anything to do with your love, even if they reject you completely, it's still, it's still there. It's not conditioned on that. It doesn't meet halfway. It's just 100% toward the other person. Um, a couple of scriptures that we're, we're just going to put up really quickly. In Matthew 22, verse 37, uh, when Jesus gives the greatest commandment, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind. That Greek word love right there, that's a derivative of agape. That's what he's saying. That, that our love toward God is to be 100% toward him. It is willing to sacrifice for him. It is uh, not conditioned on if he's doing what we want him to do in our lives or in the world. It's just it's toward him and it is good. And that is the way that he loves us. His love for us, he was willing to sacrifice. He's willing to give. He wills our good and acts upon it constantly. It doesn't matter if we're being rebellious or not. That love is always there coming toward us. And so um, that's one verse. Uh, There's another one in John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. In the next verse, By this, by agape, uh, people will know that you're my disciples if you have Love for one another. All those uses of love, it's all this kind of love. Um, so agape love is, uh, is modeled by Jesus for us. And then uh, Jesus commands us to have that kind of love for everyone. That's a little bit exhausting when you think about it. It's like, oh, I'm supposed to love everybody all the time, no matter if they love me back, in a way where I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice of myself and give for their good and act for their good. Um, it sounds just really, really tiresome. And uh, the thing about it is agape love uh, has a lot of wisdom in what that needs to look like. Uh, the call to love one another in this kind of way is, is not... Uh, well, it's, it's tempered with wisdom. It's knowing what's, what's actually good for someone. So to will the good of another and act upon it, sometimes that means you give them a hug, and sometimes that means you sit them down and uh, tell them the truth, you know, like Jesus does with us. Uh, it, it, has, it, it takes a lot of different forms, but that form of love, agape, is, is the one that, that Jesus and Paul and Peter and all throughout the New Testament, that's the kind of love that uh, we are called to. Okay, so that's the first one. Um, the second one is uh, philia, P-H-I-L. I-A. Um, this is probably best understood as like um, friendship and camaraderie. Um, it shows up in the New Testament. Here's two examples in Romans 12, verse 10. Um, Love one another with brotherly affection. Okay, brotherly affection, that's philia. That's this, this Greek word. That's that kind of love. Um, and then in uh, Hebrews 13, 1, it says, let brotherly love continue. That's the same word. 
And so there is a call to, um, to love each other as friends. Um, this word does not show up nearly as many times as agape does in the New Testament. And again, not that you make everything about word count, but there's something to be said for, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times agape shows up in the New Testament. And there's a handful of times this one shows up, but it's there. And so there is a call for us to have friends and for there to be that kind of camaraderie and brotherly affection that fits into, uh, fits into things very, very nicely. Um, but we aren't called to be like to have this kind of relationship with everybody all the time, you know, brotherly affection and friendship. It's if agape is 100% toward the other person unconditionally, uh, philia, it kind of is more 50, 50, you know, like you are friends with people who are friends back with you, uh, except on Facebook. Right. And so, um, but you are friends with people, but like there has, there is some sort of reciprocation that happens. Um, if you're trying to be friends with somebody and trying and trying and trying and they don't want anything to do with you, then you are not friends with them, you know? So by nature, this kind of love kind of meets in the middle. And uh, that's a part of it is, is how does this, like how fulfilling are these friendships? How does this uh, enrich our lives? Those kinds of things. And, and it's good to have friends. Jesus had friends. Um, it's okay to have best friends. Jesus had best friends. Uh, he had all these disciples and yet there were 12 that he related to differently. Within the 12, he had three that he related to differently than the other nine. And within the three, there was one he related to differently than the other two. Uh, and so if, if Jesus can get away with having best friends, then I think we can all get away with having like really close friends and not feeling like everybody has to be philia with us. You know, it's just kind of how it works. And um, this is not, it's just kind of one of those things that, um, that just sort of happens in a natural way. Uh, and God has made us to have friends like this. And uh, so agape is 100% toward someone else. Um, Philia is more 50-50. And then there's a th- the third form is, e- is spelled E-R-O-S, eros. Um, this, is, this is where we get our, our, the word uh, erotic from. Uh, this, is, uh, this is the like, sexual attraction that exists. Um, and so for the rest of the night, I'm just going to say attraction, and so we'll leave it at that. So that attraction that is there um, is, is another thing that exists between us. And um, I did a night uh, maybe a year ago or something like that where we got into all kinds of detail about it, and you can podcast that, and that's all fine. Um, but it's not, this is not a sinful kind of love, you know. It's not a sinful thing to be attracted to someone God has made us that way, like he's wired us up for that. Um, it, it's certainly like to, to feel this kind of, of love, this eros is one thing, to act upon it should only happen in the, in the context of a covenant uh, with your spouse. Um, that's where it is appropriate and that's how God made us. Um, so attraction in general, not a bad thing, but when you act on it, it needs to be with your spouse and that's it. Not outside of that uh, or, or whatever. Um, but that's the, the, the third kind of love. And what's interesting is that this word doesn't show up in the New Testament, like at all. So you have agape love, which happens just scores of times. Philia, which happens a handful of times, but it's there. And eros, which is not, not at all uh, explicitly. Like it's implied, you know, here and there. But uh, So if we're going on word count alone, um, that should tell us something. And word count is one thing, but when you look at, like, thematically, what Jesus is teaching throughout the New Testament, what the apostles teach, the church fathers, um, there's a great emphasis on agape love. There is also, they stress friendship, philia, um, but agape love is, it, it really, it tells us something, that that is such a big part of what's going on. So, what does this have, what does this have to do with marriage? All right, let me... Um, when you consider this, uh, something I've been thinking about a lot lately, um, just for, for months and months and months, and it's how, it's how God, as he made us, he made us and wired us up in very, very specific ways for certain things to um, resonate with us, for us to need certain things, for us to not need other things. Um, that proportionally that there's like we're wired up in that way as well. 
Um, so I was thinking the other day, like here, here's an example of what I mean. Like uh, in watching like the news and just whatever's going on, uh, just considering like how many like pop stars uh, just end up just really just making some really bad decisions, you know. Um, and movie stars and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's, you know, with Philip Seymour Hoffman's overdose, and there's just been a series of those kinds of things. And um, just those very, very public figures uh, either getting arrested or all these addiction problems and all these things that are so tough. And I was just thinking about why, like, why is that? And, and at, at first you're thinking like, oh, there, you know, there's a... You know, there's a substance abuse issue that starts there and it kind of becomes something else. Or um, they're unhappy about this or it's a cultural thing. It's, it's their community, that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, when it boils down to it, um, God didn't wire us up to be famous. Like, he didn't make us as humans, like, in a way where we were prepared for, for, that, for fame at all. You know? He's the famous one. We're, we're not. It doesn't mean that we're scum, but it's... This is not how he made us. We weren't made to rule the universe. Uh, he was made to, to rule the universe. He brings us in, and one day we will, with him, rule the universe. But with the way things are right now, the reason why so many of those celebrities and pop stars and stuff, why they crumble, is because it's just not how God put us together. Um, so in a similar sense, relationally, we were, we were built by God to... To have this, to have love for one another, uh, in in some pretty important proportions, I guess is I guess the way to think about it. And so, um, so I was, was thinking about this in, in prep for the BCM thing, and kind of put together a like a. I was trying to think like what's built proportionally. I was like pyramids. Pyramids are built proportionally, right? And so uh, this, I want to show this. Um, I drew a very like poor, drew it very poorly at the BCM. Um, a friend of mine. Uh, did this so I wouldn't have to draw it because it's horrible when I draw things. Um, so th- thinking relationally uh, in terms of this kind of pyramid, this this is how God built us. It's for this foundational love to be agape love. And then on top of that comes philia, and on top of that comes eros. So your marriage... All right. Whether you're married now or you hope to be one day, uh, your marriage should be proportionally built like this. That agape is the foundational bedrock love that you have for each other. That begins with uh, God's love for you, and then you live that out with your spouse. You you are that parable that is alive. You know um, that you are completely that you're loving them without condition uh it doesn't matter if it's reciprocated or not it goes 100 percent toward the other person you're willing to sacrifice whatever for them that they're that you will their good you act upon their good all the time it's you're just giving of yourself to your spouse constantly um from that foundation there's a friendship that's there you know like you just you enjoy hanging out with each other uh, you laugh together, you cry together. You, it doesn't mean that you're like the same exact person necessarily. Maybe you have different things that, that you enjoy doing, but there's just a friendship that's there where, you know, at the end of the day, like who do you want to hang out more, more than, with more than anybody else? Well, it's your, it's your best friend, right? Um, then there's Eros that's there, that when you enter into that covenant together, uh, now, there's, now you have the opportunity to act on that attraction that 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 grew you know over the course of your relationship, and so um, it's able to play the role that it's supposed to play, and so uh, this should be how things work. So if you are not married, but you hope to be married one day, in regard to the kind of love that forms with whomever you date and get engaged to and get married, this this should be something that you're that you just refuse to settle for. Um, if you are married, this should be the ideal that you are always working toward and asking God to shape in you and joining him in like making sure that proportionally this is what's happening. Um, now, while this, while this is a great ideal and it is uh, very important, 
Um, sometimes, like there's another, let me let's switch to a different kind. Sometimes our marriages or relationships look kind of like this. Where it's built on that attraction and all the physical stuff and all that. Uh, and then, like, like a lot of times these relationships start off, I mean, it's just right from the beginning, you know. And that becomes all that you really know about each other. That, you know, that's the most uh, foundational thing about your relationship is that physical, you know, whatever. Um, and, and a lot of times it's not just the attraction, it's the fact that you acted on it too soon. And um, that that has formed the foundation of your relationship. And then you try and be friends from that. Maybe you do. Maybe, you, you know, maybe there's a camaraderie that exists. And then, because you're a good Christian kid, you like, bloop pop agape love, you know, right there on the top, just like, oh, we've got to bring Jesus into it somehow, right? And so, um, and so it ends up being built this way, uh, which is not how God made you. It's not how God made us. He didn't make us for this. So eros is incredibly important. I mean, it is so important to a marriage. It's just, it is. Um, and it, the role it's supposed to play, we need to let it play the, that role. But we don't need to let it play a greater role than God designed it to play. Because as great as Eros is, it's not, it's not bedrock. You know? Like if uh, I'm like super nerdy about New York City, and there are a lot of people who, are, who like geek out about New York because it's like the capital of everything and all the celebrities live there. Or it's like everything creative comes out of there or, or just wanting to live in New York and be a part of how it you know, never sleeps and all this kind of stuff. And I'm the weirdo that walks around the city like, man, can you imagine the sewage structure, like the infrastructure here? It's just got to be incredible. Like if I could get below these streets and just see all this stuff, you know. Um, like I really do think of like how many miles of pipes carry the hot water, you know. I was like, what is wrong with me, you know. Um, but that's why I get super excited when, like, the History Channel or one of those obscure deals, like, run some special on, like, New York City and whatever. Like, I watch all of them. I don't know what it is. I'm just captivated by that many people in that small of a space for that long. Um, how did this city form? You know, the movie Gangs of New York, the first hour of that movie, I'm just entranced by it because there's just something about it. Uh, I'm just not like everybody else when I say I love New York. It's just very different. Um, and so... Uh, but I watched a, a thing one time that was talking about the history and like what it was like, you know, before it became inhabited and how, how basically how they built this city. And I never really thought about it before, but um, you know, the, the island of Manhattan, it, there are sections of it that are filled with skyscrapers, you know, like the south end. And then you kind of, as you move further north, the buildings get shorter. And then like in the middle of it, you hit like more skyscrapers. And I just, I never really thought about why it was like that. I assumed it was like greedy landowners or something like that. But uh, the special I was watching was talking about the reason why the island, like why the skyscrapers are, are like that is because there are certain parts of, of Manhattan that, that have the kind of bedrock that can support these like super, super tall buildings and other parts of the island that cannot support it. So if they were to try to build these buildings, they would, they would not be able to stand because the bedrock is not able to, um, to support that kind of structure. Um, you and I are the same way. That as important as Eros is in your, in your marriage and in life and, and the role it's supposed to play, it's not sustainable. It's not bedrock. It's not what you can build on. It will crumble. And when things look like this and Eros begins to crumble, then the entire thing tends to come down. And that's a difficult place to be um, when we built with the wrong kind of relational like love and materials than God designed us for, you know. So this is one way. There's another way that that relationships sometimes form. You just really just flip the bottom two, where uh, where there is a camaraderie there. It's like there's like this fifty fifty friendship, you know, kind of stuff. And then uh, that attraction grows, and you maybe start to act on that, you know, too soon. That kind of stuff. And really, like, again, agape is just kind of thrown in later. You know, sometimes even, like, after you're married, you know, and you start to wonder, like, why, why, don't, why isn't there a lot of substance in our marriage? It's like, oh, because we, cause we, we, we built out of order, you know. And so philia, that friendship, is crucial to a marriage, of course, of course. But again, it's, it's, not, it's not the kind of love that will um, sustain 
Because God made you with great precision. He didn't just throw you together. He didn't just throw you together as a person. He just didn't throw you together as a couple. He made you precisely. And the teachings of Jesus and and everything we see in the New Testament points back toward the first one. That this is how God made us. For agape to be the, the base of your marriage and that relationship. And then comes your friendship. And then comes that attraction. And everything plays the role it's supposed to play. That's what, if you're not married, you should be, that should be your standard. Um, if you are married, that should be what we're working toward. So Ephesians 5, uh, let's, let's look at this. In light, of, in light of that, okay, that pyramid idea, look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. All right, so we just take that right there. Those two uses of love are both agape. It's not eros, because that would be weird for Christ to love us, right? That that's not it. It's not philia. It's not like man, Jesus is like he's like your buddy. It's like no, that's not how he didn't love us like friends. He loved us with that divine self-sacrificing love that willed our good and acted upon it. I was willing to do whatever it, whatever it would take for us to, to be alive again. So husbands, you're called to love your wives with that kind of love, with agape love. That is what you're called to. And this passage, of course, like puts a lot of emphasis on the man. And I believe that there's a lot of good reasons for that and all that. But it, it, it doesn't mean that the wives are exempt from this. That he has to love you like Jesus loved the church and you just get to do whatever. Um, it's reciprocated, which we'll get to in a second. Um, okay, so husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? That's a demonstration of agape. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. All right? So, if, if you take, if you jump from husbands of your wives as Christ loved the church, and jump down to verse 27, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's, that was his ultimate goal. was the purification of us. He was all about us being set free from sin and restored to the Father and brought into the family. And he was willing to do whatever he had to do in order to accomplish that. So uh, he came and died. We'll get to that stuff in a second. But that's how he loved the church. He's like, whatever it takes for her to be who she's supposed to be. That's how he loved us. So husbands are to love their wives in that same way. That's what... When you made vows to your wife at your wedding ceremony, or one day if you get married, when you make them, that's essentially what you're saying is, I'm going to be the most accurate picture of Jesus that you ever see on the earth. I'm not going to be Jesus, but I'm going to imitate him. And I'm going to show you tangibly the way that he loves you with that agape love that puts your needs ahead of mine and sacrifices for you and loves you. And does whatever it takes to aid you in your pursuit of holiness. That's what husbands are called to. Verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his, mother, uh, his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. That last part basically means that she just reciprocates that. That's what that respect is. I'm going to take the way that you're loving me, and I'm going to love you in the same way. Um, that wives are called to the same stuff. And so really, uh, yes, husbands are called to lead in the 
demonstration of agape love for each other, but you're both called to the same thing. Um, you, when in the middle of that section, like in 28, 29, 30, um, talking about nourishing and cherishing, uh, because the two have become one, you're, there's a, uh, you're directly responsible for each other, you know? So when you guys are, that are married, uh, when, when you entered into covenant together and uh, left your father and mother, you held fast to each other, the two became one, this kind of new thing formed. And so you each have your individual identity still. Uh, so husbands, you're still you, and wives, you're still you. But also, God, God also at the same time sees you as one. So some people tend to think that like, oh, he no longer sees us as individuals. Like, no, he, he still sees you as an individual and he sees you as one because there's a union that is formed. And so now you are, uh, you have a, like a really specific interest in your spouse's pursuit of holiness. But your spouse does in your pursuit of holiness. And so here's, put all that together. Here's what, here's, here's what agape love means in that setting. Um, if you, as a, I'll pick on the husbands because it's easier. Uh, if you as a husband decide like to just like have one of those days where you're just going to be very self-centered and take it out on people and you're just kind of being whatever, um, you're, it directly impacts your wife because you are one. And so you really can't look at her and be like, oh, just, you know, don't worry about me. Don't let this impact you. I'm just having a bad day. It's like, no, you're tied together. You know, it's not, it's not un, too unlike, uh, like a, when a, a mom is carrying the baby, uh, in the womb, what the mom eats, the baby eats. So the mom like watches what she eats and puts in her body, right? She doesn't drink things that are be harmful for the baby or eat things that are harmful for the baby. As you're married, it's the same exact way. So when you enter into covenant together and you become one, you are, are, you're saying, I'm going to like sacrifice so much uh, for you that it doesn't really matter what I want to do or how I want to carry myself or how I want things to be. Um, I'm, I have a direct impact on you. And so if that means saying no to some things, some like, sinful behavior or whatever, I'm going to do that. I'm going to say no to it because we are one and I directly impact you. And so Jesus being one with us is the same way that there are, uh, when he was on the earth, there are all kinds of opportunities he could have had to engage in whatever sinful behavior or whatever. Like he could do anything he wants all the time and he, cho- he chooses uh, out of obedience to the Father and out of his love for us. He chose to walk in holiness over the course of his life. And so the same thing between a husband and wife. Um, that's agape love that's always giving. If, if, you're built on, if your marriage is built on philia love, it's 50-50, right? So you, there's like room to give or whatever in that, and it's, it's, it, it is determined on if it's reciprocated or not. And that's why we, you don't build on that. You build on this. And at the end of this text, verse 32, the mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. What Paul does right there, he fills in this gap that's been missing. You know, for so long, people have been like, what, what is it about marriage? What is it about this union? Like, what, why is marriage so sacred and such a big deal and this and this and this? And he's like, well, it's because when you are married, you are pointing to something that's greater than yourself. The mystery of, of that union and that oneness and that love, and it's because it's, pointing to Jesus and the church. It points to God's love for us. It's about something bigger than you. And so, um, uh, I, I don't remember where I read it, but it was a couple years ago. It said that married, married couples are like a copy of the original. When you get married, you're saying, all right, we're going we're gonna to be a duplicate of Jesus and the church. We're going to be a parable that's lived out for everyone. We're going to love each other with agape love. And as people see that, they're going to see, oh, that's how God loves us. The same way that this husband loves his wife and this way this wife loves her husband. The way that's happening right there. And they may never articulate it that way, but God's saying, no, I'm, I'm going to take your marriage, I'm going to use it to show people what agape love looks like. The world knows or thinks it knows what eros looks like in philia. Agape is, is rare. 
It's rare. So God created this institution of marriage. Say, okay, I'm going to have this, these two together living out this parable, and these two together living out this parable, and this parable, and this parable, and this parable, and this parable. I'm going to scatter them all over the world because there are people who will never set foot in a church and they'll never open a Bible, but they work with married people and they live around married people and they hang out with married people and send these couples out just to live out the gospel, live out the gospel, live out the gospel. So marriage, in one sense, is evangelistic. But it's not just about other people, it's about you too. So one of the things I, I enjoy asking married couples is like, what, what have you learned about God's love for you through the way that you try to love one another? And there's a lot of times there's some, just some great answers. One thing that comes up a lot is like, well, I've learned how incredibly difficult agape love is. I've learned how difficult it is to really be unconditional at times, and I've, I've learned, learned just how amazing His grace really is for us. That He would sacrifice Himself in that way. That He would do the things that He's done for us. So married couples, you're, God didn't put you together just so other people can know about His love. He puts you together also so that you can learn about His love for you. As you try and live out this parable, and a part of living it out is to realize how it is impossible apart from Him his empowerment of your efforts. So you're a copy of the original. You act out the gospel. You're all about each other's holiness. All these ideas that fit together, that come out of that Ephesians passage, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous, tremendous blessing. And we have here at this church, we have so many married couples that have been married for just a few years, figuring this out, figuring this out, figuring this out. And I think God's been very gracious to us as a, as a younger congregation to, to begin to, like, or to talk about these things and to push one another, you know, to push husbands to not just be typical Southern American husbands, you know, but to be like, no, I'm, I'm going to look at Christ. I'm going to strive to be like him, both as his son, but also as a husband, and then maybe as a father. And for wives to not just sit around and say, oh, no, like I, it's, it's like I'm the princess, and he's supposed to treat me, he's supposed to treat me like that, and this kind of stuff to say, no, um, I'm a daughter of Jesus, and I'm learning about him to imitate him and to live that out with my husband. You know, and then if we have kids, you know, the same way. To be pushing in that direction which I know, I know that it's not, it, it can't be easy. And the reason I know that is because your calling as a married couple to imitate Christ is no different than, than people like me who are not married. It's the same thing. So single people don't be like, yeah, man, <laughs> y'all got it tough. Like, no, no, we all, we all are in the same boat. We're all called to Christ-likeness and agape love toward one another. But when you're in marriage, you're in this covenant, this like promise, and God is... You're saying, we believe he's called us to walk together like this and to demonstrate the gospel in this way. It's, it's a unique and very beautiful and special calling. So when, the, when you go back and you think about the, the pyramid, people who are not married, that needs to be your standard. And just I've watched so many people sell out uh, and compromise and just settle for less. Uh, don't do it. Don't do it. Um, but if you are married, and you're like, okay, I don't know that that pyramid looks like our marriage. Um, I don't want that to be discouraging. You know, Jesus is filled with hope. The gospel is filled with goodness. Um, If your marriage is built out of order, Jesus can fix that. Like we've been saying the last few weeks, he's already died for the sins that have contributed to the out-of-orderness of of all of our lives, Uh, and he will build you. He will do that. And so I want you to be filled with hope. I want, I want us to all to be challenged, of course. But don't let that, like, don't feel shamed or don't feel like, oh, no, we're, like, we're doomed. No, the gospel is all about rebuilding and reconciling. Um, as we close, flip over to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Um, I want to just kind of uh, piggyback off of 
some of the stuff from the married discipleship thing yesterday. Um, look at Philippians two for just a second. Um, let me give you two two things. If you're like if you if you want your marriage to be more solid and and built on the right kinds of relational love like we've been talking about. Let me, let me tell you two things um, that come from that Ephesians 5 text. One of them, um, Paul says that, uh, that you, you nourish and cherish. Uh, to nourish and cherish your marriage and your relationship with each other. Uh, I think that's a very important step. Um, and I know that your spouse is important to you, but I think there's a difference from... From what I hear, there's a difference between your spouse being important and that, all that kind of stuff. There's a difference between that and nourishing and cherishing your relationship with each other. Nourishment, uh, like to nourish something, that requires effort and care and tenderness and a, a willingness to, um, to sacrifice of yourself. And so I think that's the first thing that I would pass on is you have to nourish and cherish. The second thing would be, if you're a copy of the original, then you need to study the original. You need to study the original. You need to know how Christ loved the church. If that's what you're trying to imitate, you've got to know what it is. And so we spend time in the Word, and we pray, and we abide, because your marriage being healthy, it starts with you and Jesus being healthy. It always comes down to that. It always comes back to, and we talked about the baseball diamond, and like what happens, uh, like what's, what's the order of that? It's always you and Jesus, and then it's you and your spouse. Not the other way around. Um, so you've studied the original. It's like, okay, well, if Jesus was like this, then I'm going to be like this. So if, it, that's why I think Philippians 2 helps us so much. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think this would be a great, great place for us all as as disciples of Christ to start. If our call is to study him, imitate him, listen to him, follow him, become just like him, texts like this give us a, just a great launch, like place to launch from, right? Um, if you're applying this to marriage, uh, study the original. Because you made a covenant and you made, you're in covenant, you made this commitment to imitate him. So imitate him, like in, in three Imitate him by not being selfish and not doing things because of your own ambition or conceit. Count your wife, count your husband more, as more significant than yourself. Don't look only to your own interests, but also to their interests. All right? Claim the mind of Christ which is in, which is in you because you are in Christ uh, though he was in the form of, a, uh, form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was open-handed with his life, with his authority, with who he was. Be open-handed in your service to your spouse. Um, he emptied himself. Took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He, he met us where we were. He didn't come halfway. You know, it's like that old lie, like, oh, marriage is 50-50. Marriage is 50-50. No. Marriage is 100-100. Both going 100, maybe you meet in the middle. That's great. That's fine. Marriage is not 50-50. Marriage is based on agape love, which is 100% toward the other person. 
And when you're 100% toward the other person and you're, you're humble and there's, it's not about ambition or vain conceit and you're considering their needs above your own and you're considering them more significant than yourselves, then guess what? Your spouse is meeting your needs and you're meeting their needs and no one goes without their needs being met. It's beautiful. You don't have, you don't have to be in self-preservation mode, always looking out for yourself because you know your spouse is there to be your helpmate. And you're there to be their helpmate. And that's how it's supposed to work. It's also how it's supposed to work in a more broad context of the church. That we're always meeting each other's needs. And when, if 100% of the people are doing that, then every single need is being met. So, if we look at the original so we know, that we know what to copy. He became obedient to the Father no matter what the cost. He laid his life on the line. Most of you won't... won't be called to that extreme for your spouse. There's probably a ton of other ways of self-sacrificing love that should be emptied out for your spouse, um, for their benefit and their good. I think you see what I'm saying. You study the original, and you have the courage and the guts to, to copy him and imitate him and strive every single day for your spouse to never, to never wonder how God feels about him. Because you're there reinforcing that. And he's using you as, as their spouse to remind them of his love for them. So we build our lives accordingly. And that proportional love is very, very important. And for all of us, married, single, dating, engaged, whatever, for all of us, it really comes down to, uh, once again, our, our understanding of the gospel. Our understanding of his love toward us, displayed, poured out, um, given freely in the sense that he was willing, but not freely in the sense that it didn't cost him anything. Um, Jesus says, nobody, took my life, take, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord, my own will. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And so we can learn a lot about the gospel uh, through the, the gift that marriage is. And so um, I hope that this is encouraging. I hope that it's challenging. Um, I hope that... Uh, this is everything God wanted it to be tonight. So uh, let's, let's stand together. I just want to pray for us. We're going to sing a little bit more in, in response, of course. So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for um, just for building us with such precision. Um, you've wired us up. Uh, to to function a certain way. And, of course, we know that sin has messed that up. But we know that you have come and conquered that. You've defeated sin and death. You have redeemed us. You sacrificed your own life to pay what we couldn't pay so that we would be bought back and brought into your, your home You've adopted us as sons and daughters. You've given us a new name, a new identity, a new everything. And God, I pray for, for those who are, are here tonight, who are, who are married, who have entered into that covenant, made these promises in front of you and in front of their friends and families and regardless of if they were totally aware of it at the time, they've all basically entered into this agreement that says we're going to live together and demonstrate Christ's love for the church to one another, to our family, uh, to our children, to um, our neighbors, to the world. That's the profound mystery of marriage. And God, I uh, I just want to lift up all those couples that we have here, um, to you and intercede for them and ask on their behalf for your help as they try and live out the gospel as they try and make agape love very visible and tangible to each other that you would help them to be humble and dependent that you would um That you would help them see that you've overcome their pride and arrogance. 
and that they really do have your mind, that the mind of Christ is in, in them, that you have redeemed them, and that is, it's not, it's not this, this thing where they have to try to not be self-centered. They, it's about growing into their true identity. God, I pray for the husbands that you would show them how to lead, that they would lead with strength, but also with tenderness. That you give them great courage as they, uh, as they face the, uh, just this incredible opportunity to study you and to imitate you and to, to be made more and more and more into your likeness. That the Christ-likeness of our husbands would morph over time in such a way that our wives are just kind of stunned. Um, that they would lead their homes well, lead their children. And, and for wives to, as they seek to do the same thing, to study your love, to learn how to reciprocate that to their husbands and to reenact the same gospel, the same blessing, the same everything. That you would help them to see all the things that you have freed them from and also to see why that you freed them to love you and to love others with that kind of love. And God, that our homes would be built in the right way. That whatever, however each of these couples would label their own, that, label that pyramid now, we know that you're taking all of us forward. And everybody here, married or not married, you've all called us to build our lives in the same way. To build on that agape love. And so help us, Father, to, um, to continue to learn more and more, step by step, each day. Uh, learn what agape love is all about. Not by trying to figure it out on paper, but by us studying the, studying the scriptures and your spirit empowering those efforts by us not being afraid to come to you and say, will you help me? We know that you, we're able to love because you loved us first. And that not only means that you set us free to love, but also that you have modeled what real love is. So help us as we seek to study and learn about you and to love you more. And from there, all of our relationships will be blessed.